This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we'd like to get started. I want to welcome all of you here. I'm delighted to see so many people. I think I can promise a very interesting evening. My name is Joel Brinkley. I'm a professor of journalism here. And before we get started, I want to just tell you how the evening will go. Momentarily, I'm going to introduce our esteemed panelists. Then I'm going to talk for just a couple of minutes to introduce you to the topic we are here to discuss, the future of newspapers. Then each of our panelists will speak for a few minutes. And after that, we're going to open for questions. I'm first going to ask each panelist one probably not too embarrassing question. And then we'll open it to the floor for questions. And at that time, if you could line up behind the microphones here. Um, I should say, am I right, Harry, that you have to leave a little early? No, I, I can stay. I'm, I'm fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, Okay, Harry Chandler has worked in several high-profile businesses over the last three decades, including film, television, newspapers, and internet, and is one of the few people to have worked across all those platforms. He is also a member of the family that owned the Los Angeles Times for almost 120 years before selling it to the Tribune Company in 2000. He's an avid photographer and a media executive. He's a graduate of Stanford and the UCLA Graduate School of Motion Pictures and Television, as well as the Anderson Business School. In the years late after that, he was an executive in the film and television business and ran his own film production company. He worked in the family business, the LA Times, where he ran new business development, among other positions. He was also executive vice president for Overture Services and Internet Advertising Firm. And now he runs Dream City, a digital publishing company, and he's at work on a book of his own photographs to be published next year. Bill Keller, to his left and mine, is executive editor of the New York Times, arguably the most important newspaper in the world. I should also mention that Bill has been my friend, colleague. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> Bill has, has been my friend, colleague, and ultimately my boss for the last two decades before I came to Stanford last fall. Bill is a graduate of Pomona College, and before joining the Times in 1984, he worked for the Portland Oregonian, Congressional Quarterly in Washington, and the Dallas Times Herald. At the Times, Bill has served as a Washington correspondent, chief of the Times Bureau in Moscow, where he won a Pulitzer Prize in 1989. And in the years since then, he has served as foreign editor, managing editor, senior writer for the Sunday Times Magazine, and ultimately executive editor beginning in July 2003. Marissa Mayer is Vice President for Search Products and User Experience at Google. She received both her undergraduate and her graduate degrees here at Stanford. And before joining Google, she worked for the UBS Research Lab in Zurich, Switzerland, and for SRI International in Menlo Park. Marissa joined Google in 1999 as the company's first female engineer. And among her projects, she has designed and developed Google's search interface helped to expand Google's reach to nations speaking more than 100 languages and defined Google News. Even with all that responsibility, Marissa still finds time to come over and teach and lecture on computer programming here at Stanford. 
Gary Pruitt is president and chief executive officer of the McClatchy Company, which publishes 31 daily newspapers across the United States and another 50 non-daily papers. They have a combined circulation of 2.76 million daily, 3.45 million on Sundays. Among the papers are the Miami Herald, the Sacramento Bee, and the Kansas City Star. McClatchy is the company that bought the Knight Ritter newspaper chain last year. It also happens to be the company that is generously sponsoring this conference this evening. <laughs> but I would have invited him anyway. <laughs> Gary is a graduate of the University of Florida and earned both a master's degree in public policy and a law degree from the University of California, Berkeley. He served as a practicing attorney until he joined the McClatchy Company as general counsel in 1981. He served in a number of senior positions before becoming president and CEO in 1996. Now to our topic of the evening, America's newspapers. They're in trouble across the country. Newspapers are reporting steep drops in circulation, ad revenues, and profits. Actually, however, the problems are more dire than most people know. Other media, other formats are quickly usurping the role newspapers play in American life. More and more readers believe they have little need for a daily newspaper, and at stake is the industry's very survival. This ought to be a concern for every American, for robust newspaper journalism, whether it appears in print or on the web, is a uniquely necessary ingredient of a functioning democracy. If it is threatened, so is our way of life, because newspapers are the source for the vast, vast majority of journalism written or aired anywhere in the United States, no matter the medium. Think about it. You read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the LA Times, and then listen to the television network news, or even in NPR, and many of the stories will seem eerily familiar. They were lifted from papers you have already read, often without credit, and not just in the United States. Let me give you just one example. Back when I was based in Jerusalem, Israel, years ago, I wrote a profile for the New York Times Magazine of the Prime Minister then, Yitzhak Shamir. I spent a lot of time with the man and found him to be rather unappealing on a personal level, a humorless little fellow. Well, I decided I was not going to say it just like that. Still, I made passing mention of the fact that Shamir was not tall, and I noted that he was not blessed with a great wit or a soothing public manner. And as I said, the Israeli press loved to pick up what we wrote, but in Israel, sometimes there were translation problems. And the next morning, the newspaper Kadashot lead headline said, New York Times calls Shamir a stupid dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they gave us credit. <laughs> The crisis in the newspaper industry presents an even more fundamental problem. As John Carroll, former editor of the Los Angeles Times, put it, without newspapers, who will make the checks at City Hall? Who in cities and towns across America will go down to the courthouse every day or to the police station? Who will inspect the tens of thousands of politicians who seek to govern? Who, amid America's great din of flackery and cant, will tell us in plain language what's actually going on. This is me speaking, not him. TV cannot do it, nor can radio, magazines, or anyone else. The crux of the problem is this. 
Many of the daily newspaper's most important features are now available on the web for free. And not just the news. Why buy a paper if you were looking for recipes, sports scores, movie listings, stock quotes, or real estate ads? Of course, newspapers have their own websites, great sites that provide many of these features. But the problem is they earn too little money. On average, nationwide, newspapers earn about 6% of their revenue from their websites. And while that percentage of, is still growing, the rate of growth for online ad revenue is beginning to fall. No one knows how all this will turn out. For now, many newspapers are laying off staff, closing foreign and domestic bureaus, trimming the size of their pages, eliminating features, burning the furniture. Analysts generally estimate it'll be 10, 15, maybe 20 years or longer before the day comes when a newspaper website can provide even half of a newspaper's revenue, when newspaper websites can pay for the newsrooms that provide their content. The question we must ask is this. Will newspapers continue to wither and eventually die waiting for that day? Now, Gary told me the other day that he thought my assessment was a bit dark. So why don't we start with you, Gary? I think <laughs> all of us would like to hear a more optimistic view. Okay, thanks, Joel. Oh, thanks a lot. You know, it's a, <laughs> it really is an honor to be here this evening, um, part of this noted lecture series, the Carlos McClatchy Memorial Symposium. And it's an honor to be part of this distinguished panel and at a great university like Stanford. One prefatory comment. Philosopher Bertrand Russell once was asked whether he was willing to die for his beliefs. Ever the pragmatist, Russell responded, of course not. I might be wrong. And that's what I'd like you to keep in mind tonight. You know, I, I might be wrong. Um, I'm not willing to die for these beliefs, but I have bet my career on them. And uh, that's going to have to be good enough this evening. We all know what conventional wisdom is. We just heard it eloquently articulated by Joel. Newspapers are dying, right? I mean, just look at the evidence. Circulation is down. Revenues are down. The number of daily newspapers is down. All other media are proliferating. The number of channels, cable channels, TV channels, websites, radio stations, everything else is proliferating in numbers. Newspapers are flat to down. The inevitable conclusion is newspapers are dying. So pervasive is this conventional wisdom that when I'm asked what I do, when I say I work at a newspaper company, people say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, is there anything I can do for you? Um, what, when are you going out of business? But you know, fortunately, for all of us and all of you who care about truth and accountability in civic life, the nation's newspapers are not so fragile as many suppose. Let's take a look first at the audience side of things. The audience for newspaper journalism is growing, not shrinking. Half the adults in the United States today read a printed newspaper, one half. On Sunday, more than half. In fact, every Sunday, tens of millions of more people read a newspaper than watch the Super Bowl this year. And even with young, for young adults, ages 18 to 34, a third of them read a newspaper in print every day. So there's a big print audience still in existence although circulation is declining and print readership is declining. But if you take the print readership and add the unduplicated reach of our websites, the total aggregate readership is growing on an unduplicated combined basis. So more people what, what, what want what we produce today than wanted it yesterday, which is not the profile of a dying industry. 
You see, the saving grace for newspapers is that they are not proliferating in number like other media. There's basically one newspaper per market. I know big cities have more than one, but in most markets there's only one. More of everything else. So all of the other media have fragmenting audiences as there are a proliferation of cable channels and TV channels and, and radio stations and niche publications. So as audiences fragment, their reach drops precipitously. Newspapers, even with declining circulation, are holding on to their audience better than their local competitors. As a result, newspapers are the last mass medium locally. And that's an obvious business advantage, but more importantly, it brings cohesion to a community, a common base of knowledge. You know, that's good news, not just for newspaper companies like McClatchy, but it's good news for society. You know, from the early days of our country, Newspapers have been indispensable in creating self-governance, as uh, Joel described. Our founding fathers knew this. Democracy and journalism have been more than neighbors, they've been partners. And we need to make sure we continue that. The stakes are very high here. So newspapers are more than holding their own at remaining relevant and important and building audiences. Some of it's online, some of it's in print, but the audience itself is growing. It's the business model that's under stress. When you look at the business side, you say revenues are down, profits are down, stocks are down, heads are down. What's going on? Well, some of it is cyclical. You know, there's a real estate bust as uh, the real estate bubble burst, and the auto industry is not doing terribly well right now, and there are fewer jobs being created right now, or it's not as many as in the past. So some of that is cyclical. But there is also a structural reset underway. As the internet matures, it takes share from all existing media, including newspapers. And so that's what's going on. We're, it's a painful process for newspapers. It's a more competitive world to be sure, but it is not a death spiral. It's useful to remember that newspapers have been in this spot before. McClatchy is 150 years old. When we were six years old, the Transcontinental Telegraph first connected Sacramento with news from the East Coast on the same day. That was radical. Um, we survived it. In the first 30 years of the company's history, 80 newspapers emerged and went broke. A lot more challenging than just a revenue decline today. And then, of course, there was the competition coming from first radio and then television with free broadcast into everyone's home, at least as traumatic to our predecessors as the effect of free Craigslist classifieds today. <laughs> Through it all, newspaper companies, including McClatchy, have survived and prospered. Today, newspaper companies have, on average, a higher profit margin than the S&P 500 companies. So they are still highly profitable businesses, a more competitive and difficult business, but still highly profitable. We take comfort from Charles Darwin's observation that it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. What a relief. We don't have to be the smartest or the strongest. I, but <laughs> thank God, right? At least some good news. Um, we just need to be adaptable. And, you know, we've plainly done that through history. McClatchy was a company that started before the advent of electric lights and this year we'll have nearly $200 million in internet revenue. 
but we will never see the return, or not likely in our, my career, the return of the easy, lucrative, exclusive franchise that we enjoyed in the latter half of the 20th century. But that's what we compare it to in the newspaper industry, not the early part of the 20th century when it was cutthroat competition and more difficult. Our comparison is to the latter half of the 20th century when business was easy. So that's the reality. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to have to adapt and evolve, as Darwin pointed out. And we're going to have to take lessons from our uh, successful competitive history. We've got to make sure we maintain the mass reach of that printed paper. There are enough people that have the habit of reading a printed paper that it will remain a mass reach medium, especially in markets where there's only one newspaper, one daily newspaper. And that's an important position to remain. And it helps us in our business and, as I said, in public service. But we don't reach everyone anymore, only about half the adults. So we need to supplement that reach with direct mail and niche products. We've got to reach everyone. It's an advertising imperative. And we have to operate the leading local internet sites in each of our markets. And we do. And we should. We've got the biggest newsroom. In fact, our newsrooms are the size of basically all the other news operations in our markets combined. So we've got the biggest newsroom, the biggest ad sales staff, good local brands, and a good way to promote it. So we don't want to squander those opportunities. We want to take advantage of it, have the leading local site. We never knew how lucrative or whether it would be lucrative to have a local internet site. We used to have like a don't ask, don't tell policy. You know, we'd lose millions of dollars. But we found out it's profitable, and guess what? It's higher margin than our print business. It's more profitable on a margin basis because we don't have paper. We don't have to buy paper. We don't have to print it. We don't have to distribute it in the same way. So it's much cheaper. If you get that right, with the printed product, the leading local internet site, and the niche publications, you roll it up, you're the leading local media company in each market where you operate. And that's an advantageous position to be in. The online business gets us back in the breaking news business, something we weren't for generations. In classifieds, we have to build our own brands and own them, like CareerBuilder and Cars.com. We have to have online partners. We're not going to be a technology company like Google. But you know what? Google's not going to be a local news company like McClatchy. And so we can partner, and we have partnered successfully with Google, and they're a great partner for newspapers, and with Yahoo, and with Microsoft. Um, and, they're, and they're anxious to partner with us. So obviously, we're not toast in their minds, right? Um, they see our unique content and local sales capabilities, the ability to deliver information to audience in, in the form they want, when they want it. Cell phones, PDAs, online, in print. So we're realistic that we're in a rough transition. There's genuine pain. It's, some of it's financial, some of it is individual. But we're also optimistic because we're engaged in that transition now. And at McClatchy, it's a, it's a journey we embark with confidence. So, you know, it's the McClatchy lecture series. I'll just conclude by talking about McClatchy's approach. Our approach is to remain mission-centered, to ask ourselves at every turn whether the tasks we undertake will advance our central mission, to speak truth to power, to speak truth about power, to hold government accountable, to build community cohesion, and to give voice to the voiceless. There's never been a greater appetite for what we've done, nor a greater need. And today, we have better tools than we've ever had before to uh, pursue that mission. And that mission has never been clearer. 
And those are the fundamentals upon which we plan to build our future. Thank you. Marissa? Uh, well, I think that I'm here to deliver a message that's very optimistic. So to the question of do we think newspapers are toast, our answer is absolutely not. Um, I think there's two fundamental observations that we make about ourselves at Google uh, that play into our overall perspective. The first is that Google is not a content company. We're fundamentally a search engine and, and, and as an aside, an advertising company. And also, we're computer scientists. We're not journalists. So we look at the news opportunity, and for us, it's really about partnering with content providers and ultimately finding distribution and monetization channels for them. When we look at what our users want, our users want information, the information that's very urgent, that's coming, break, new breaking news, archival information, and so on and so forth. And through tools like Google News and the Google search engine, what we see our users finding that information. And so for us, it's really important to partner with the content providers so we can have that information in our index and include that information in our products. And from a financial perspective, we really need to make sure that those editorial opinions and those journalists are well provided for, that they have a solid business opportunity that, makes, that ensures their success because it's that content that people are searching for. It's what drives the need on search engines. We need the content providers to be successful. So we partner with them through tools like AdSense and other targeted advertising techniques to try and help build a monetization model that really works for them. Um, and when we look at uh, these opportunities, there are things we can do, like help bring assets from the newspapers online, image archives, newspaper archives, bringing those online, and then also helping people find fresh perspectives through things like Google News. And for us, it really is about that distribution and that opportunity that you know, we're really excited about. Uh, I think as we look to the future, journalism and news will change, but there is a fundamental need that it fills. We've done some experiments at Google with users where we'll put blogs into the Google News product and not necessarily have them labeled. And it's really interesting to see how people respond to that because when they're reading the news and they come across the blog, they immediately know it. They know there's something different about it. They might not be able to articulate it, but they can tell. They, you can, it's immediate that they can feel whether or not there's the production value of editing, whether or not fact-checking has happened. And they can tell that there's something fundamentally different about it. And to me, what that says is that this is something that's very fundamental for people. The production value of editing, fact-checking, putting together an investigative reporting set of, of information, and actually pre presenting that from a coherent perspective is really fundamentally important to people. And while it might take a different form online, whether or not you actually visit the homepage of a branded newspaper, or whether or not you're just visiting the articles that are of interest on the topics that you care about, it still is something that will have a future. You know, uh, Eric, our CEO, has conjectured that we do, might even in the future see different brands arising online, like uh, Facebook reporters or MySpace reporters, ultimately doing that deep investigative journalism. But investigative journalism still will happen. It may have a different form, but it's still something that's really very fundamentally useful to people. And it's those opportunities of what new media can do, how we can build a technology platform for different providers to work on that is something that we're committed to, we're committed to making successful, and we're particularly excited about.
Uh, Joel has stacked the deck with optimists, and I'm going to um, slather on another layer of optimism. But before I do, um, I wanted to make two confessions. Um, one of them is that among editors, I'm a comparatively lucky guy. Uh, I work for a paper that is protected by a family that actually believes in this stuff uh, and um, that recognizes what is becoming, sadly, a radical proposition, that if you're going to do great journalism, you should have great journalists. Um, so when I tell my counterparts at other papers uh, how optimistic I am about our future, they tend to respond, well, easy for you to say, uh, and maybe they have a fair point. My second confession is that um, I feel like a bit of an imposter at events like this, uh, where the subject is the business of newspapers. I've never made any claims to be an entrepreneur or a businessman or a futurist. Uh, my only business credential is that I once attended a mid-career summer program at the Wharton School, uh, which had one lasting effect. I got so fed up with what passes for prose in business textbooks that I started reading poetry again for the first time since college. <clears throat> so I'm not sure what my classmates got out of Wharton, but I got William Butler Yeats and Philip Larkin and Elizabeth Bishop and James Fenton and a cast of many others who have no idea what monetize means. Um, <laughs> the truth is we are all imposters to a certain extent. Uh, we're looking out at a landscape without maps and we're pretending we know the way. Um, we have a pretty clear picture of where we are now, which Joel has painted in dire but generally accurate uh, colors. Uh, I think we see where we need to be. Uh, what we don't see clearly is the route from here to there. Uh, and yet we face constant pressure from the markets and from our own staffs and from our own families to uh, make a convincing case for how we're going to get from this end of the long bridge to the other end. Gigabytes of PowerPoint have been devoted to assuring our critics that the way is clear, but it isn't. There's a phrase that used to be popular with self-improvement gurus and drug and alcohol rehab programs, fake it till you make it. That's kind of what we're all doing. <clears throat> so with those two large caveats, here's why I'm an optimist. Um, I firmly believe that good newspapers, at least some good newspapers, will survive and flourish. Many will be local, uh, like Gary's newspapers, uh, a few will be national or global, like mine. Some will be specialized, others will serve a generalized audience. Some will be down market, and others will serve a more discerning readership. Between now and then, whenever then is, we face a wrenching transition, and eventually our newspapers may no longer be technically paper. But we will be, as the old joke put it, black and white and red all over. Um, my optimism is, uh, is based on something that all of you who bluffed your way through Econ 101 will recognize as, the, from, uh, as a, a, an important line from the Complete Idiot's Guide to Economics. All economic activity arises from a scarcity of goods and services in comparison to human wants and needs. This is the law of supply and demand, and it is our friend. Uh, there is, first of all, a powerful need, a market, for reliable information about the world. I don't imagine this audience needs much persuading on that score. Uh, pick your crisis, pick your continent. Uh, there is stuff going on out there, and if we don't understand it, it's not just the newspaper business that's in deep trouble. And at this time of desperate need for reliable news reporting, the supply is dwindling. 
that may sound like a strange thing to say in the age of too much information. You turn on your computer and there is a media tsunami, blogs in every flavor, Google News, social sites like MySpace, uh, file sharing programs like YouTube. You can harvest it from around the world. You can customize it. You can have it delivered to your cell phone. You can probably get it intravenously. <laughs> you know where many thousands of readers turned for their news of the Virginia Tech murders last month? They went to Wikipedia. There were more than 750,000 visits to Wikipedia's main article on the shooting in the first two days. So this is all very exciting and a little unnerving, um, but it's missing a few things. Uh, what's missing first and foremost from the new frontier of digital information overload is reporters, the great engine of news gathering, the people who witness events, who ferret out information, supply context and explanation. I've been haunted lately by a statistic I read in the Los Angeles Times. When Saddam, Saddam Hussein fell, there were more than 1,000 foreign correspondents in Iraq covering the American invasion and occupation. Today, there are fewer than 75, the rest driven away by the extraordinary cost and risk of covering that story. My paper maintains the largest bureau in Iraq, seven reporters, mostly people at the top of their profession, and we have a huge network of Iraqi stringers around the country. If I may boast a little on behalf of my colleagues, I think we deliver the most thorough and reliable reporting you can find on that monumentally important, increasingly dismal story. It costs us, thank you. It costs us a few million dollars a year to do that. And not once have the executives of my company whispered a word of complaint. It's what we do. The second thing that's missing from this new frontier is standards. We have a set of values built into our professional DNA, and they include a reverence for accuracy, impartiality, transparency, and perhaps most important of all, independence. We strive to preserve our independence from political and economic interests, including our own advertisers. We do not work in the service of a party or an industry or even a country. We do not pander to our readers by providing them only information that puts their mind at ease or only information that conforms to their prejudices. I'd be the last to claim that newspapers always live up to those standards. Newspapers are made by human beings. I represent a newspaper that managed to overlook the Holocaust and that published some pretty credulous stories in the run-up to the war in Iraq. Unlike most institutions, though, we make a fetish of correcting our mistakes. I've had a few occasions to write mea culpas for my paper. It's no fun taking yourself to the woodshed, uh, but it is essential to our credibility, and it's not something that most institutions do. Come to think of it, we're still waiting for the White House mea culpa on WMD. <laughs> uh, in defense of these principles, a company like the New York Times is a bulwark against powerful forces that would tame or silence our independence. It is extremely useful Trust me, to have the clout of a big institution on your side if you're going to stand up to an angry president or a special prosecutor or a furious advertiser. The third thing we supply is judgment. Like the mighty aggregators of the web world, we collect a huge amount of information, but we apply to it experience and intelligence. We attempt every day to pull together an accessible package that will tell you pretty much what you need to know and how to make sense of it. Of course, you can decide to read only about subjects that interest you, but there's a glorious and valuable serendipity in being exposed to things that might interest you, even though you wouldn't have known it 
if not for your helpful editors at the New York Times. All of this, the reporting, the standards, the judgments offered on the reader's behalf, translates into trust and authority, which translates into brand, one of those words like content and monetized that I'm appalled to find I can now say without little ironic quote marks. <coughs> Who besides newspapers are our competitors in supplying this need? I love Google and Wikipedia. I certainly use them a lot. But Google News and Wikipedia don't have bureaus in Baghdad or anywhere else. With a few exceptions, they do not, in the cold terminology of the 21st century media business, create content. They aggregate content created by others. Google does it through search algorithms, Wikipedia through editing by collective. In both cases, to paraphrase Blanche Dubois, they have always depended on the content of others. <laughs> others like us, for example. And then there are blogs, uh, or as my friend Jeff Jarvis calls them, citizen journalists. Hooray for them. Uh, I'm somewhat addicted to blogs. They can swarm around a subject and turn up fascinating tidbits that we've overlooked. Uh, they keep us on our toes and sometimes point out things that we're neglecting. Uh, there are bloggers who file firsthand reports of their experiences from distant places, including Iraq. And sometimes their work is enlightening or intriguing. But most of the blog world does, doesn't even attempt to report. It recycles, it riffs on the news, it reasons, or sometimes it rants, which is not bad, it's just not enough. The truth is, people crave more than raw information and opinion, however neatly it is sorted out and served up. What they crave and need is someone they can trust to vouch for the information, to dig behind it, and make sense of it. The more discerning readers want depth, they want skepticism, they want context, they want the material packaged in a way that honors their intelligence. The news organizations that survive this transition will be different. We're already changing before your eyes, morphing into hybrid organizations that produce journalism in print and online. We still distribute that familiar bundle of cellulose and ink. The printed newspaper is still profitable, as Gary pointed out, and I like to think it'll be around for a while, although newsprint may eventually become like vinyl LP records, a boutique product for the few who can afford them. At the same time, we have more readers than at any time in our history because of the web. Millions of people who come, uh, come to our website for news and analysis, and, they, and we are learning fast the skills and tactics of news presentation on the web. Twice in my lifetime, the New York Times has seemed to be on the verge of extinction once during the New York City financial crisis of the mid-70s, and again during the deep national recession of the late 1980s. Both times my paper resisted the temptation to panic. It invested in new things, it adapted, and it flourished. I believe that this time, too, newspapers that resist the panic around them and stay true to their mission will endure. Thank you. Well, I have two opportunities here that I intend to uh, take advantage of. One, being last in the group, I can um, throw in some comments that I might not have before. And the more important is, usually when I've ever given speeches, I've always been employed by someone else. So I had to be a little more PC, a little more worried about what the company needed to say. Uh, I'm speaking tonight on my own, not for the Chandler family, not for the LA Times. So perhaps a, a little more honesty can creep through. That's an opportunity that uh, hasn't happened in a while. Um, 
I'm, I'm both an optimist and a pessimist, and perhaps more pessimistic than what you've heard. Let me start first with the optimism. Um, I've worked in almost all mediums, magazine, radio, television, internet, uh, newspapers. In the history of 21st century, all new media have been evolutionary, not replacement of the media that, re that they came on top of. Radio, when it came up, had an effect on newspapers. Television was supposed to put radio out of business. It didn't. Uh, the internet is certainly changing not just the media, but shopping, how we buy, how we receive our media. So I think it's going to be an evolutionary change. I think that's the good news. It's going to be around. There are people who like reading print, who also like reading the web, who also like carrying their headlines along around in their uh, cell phone. But I think the bad news is, is pretty clear. I think we have... Um, and newspaper business model that's really out of whack. And I don't even know what a whack is. Um, you have a, a business that was built on classified ads, display ads, and a certain uh, readership base, all of which are in decline. A lot of businesses have been affected by technology or foreign competition. Some have persevered. Um, but not without a lot of pain. So I think we're going to see the Internet effect uh, affecting New York Times down to McClatchy, everyone in between. What I'm hearing is that the Internet revenues are not growing as fast as the revenues are declining. Case in point, if 6% is our average national Internet revenue base, Newspapers are losing 6% in the last year, some of them, in revenues and readership. So um, if you were to think about a curve, say, look at 1999 when the Internet really kind of got going, we're seeing a curve downward in readership, we're seeing a downward trend in certainly classifieds and also in some display categories. Where are we on that trend? That's really, I think, the prognosis that um, it's important to understand. It's certainly not going to go to zero. The question is where and how much pain is everyone going to endure as it slides down? Um, what's ahead? I think newspapers are going to have to deal with uh, lack of almost all classified ads. Classified ads are the employment and the housing and the cars that used to be the high margin ads that supported them. Those have all migrated to the monsters and the cars.com. Um, readership. Readership is down at most newspapers. It will continue to go down. Younger generation are reading less. Even though both McClatchy and New York cited that there are more readers of their paper vis-a-vis -vis the internet, but the monetization of them is way down. And so the paid readership is the number that sustains your business, not the unpaid. And at some point, that flattens off. And those of us who enjoy the morning paper and our children who you know, hopefully will, will find that uh, as a supplement to all the other ways they're getting news, that, that there will be a stasis to it. But um, I think we're probably five or 10 years away from finding what that number is. And then there's going to be a lot of pain to get there. So I think the old models aren't actually going to carry us for the next decade without a lot of pain. 
So I sort of see four options on the business side and four options on the editorial side. Option one on the business side is, I think, what we're seeing today. Dramatic cuts, dramatic or partial cuts, they're going to get more dramatic of people and space devoted to editorial. Papers are shrinking. The people that create the papers are shrinking. Buyouts, you're going to read about last year. You read about them the year before. You're going to read about them coming up. Um, at some point, when the readership flattens and display ads on themselves start to pay for the paper, then it will, it will stabilize. But that's a painful process. It is for any business that's suddenly facing competitors that they haven't had before. So on the business side, I see some other ideas. One is to diversify at the corporate level. Washington Post is a great example. They bought a company years ago called Kaplan, which is now the number one preparatory, um, uh, college preparatory and graduate school preparatory classes. They have a huge margin. And you can keep the Washington Post at a much lower margin if you have something like Kaplan paying a lot of money. Um, they're hard to find those things, but if you do, it's a big win. Uh, 1995, I was just had joined my family's company, and the internet was just starting. We we came very close to having one of those. Um, there were two kids that I met who were enrolled at Stanford. <laughs> I flew them down to LA. They didn't have a business plan. We offered them two million dollars for 40 percent of their little company. One of them said yes. One of them said no. Uh, that was Yahoo. Um, we also did the same thing with Google at my second company for a little more money and still didn't get a, a yes. But So I, I think at the corporate level, if you can find other businesses to diversify, that's a big win. Third idea is sort of brand extension. All local newspapers have great brands. Everyone in the community knows them. Everyone trusts them. And newspapers... Um, need to continue to look for local businesses that use their delivery or advertising capability outside of just delivering news. Those exist. There's other people that do, that, that do these things. Newspapers need to be more focused on how do we move into that? How do we leverage our brand? Last idea is, is, um, comes painfully close to home, which is um, less of an idea and just more a reality. Um, one of my beliefs is that newspapers are going to be um, a bit more like sports teams, where the ownership of them is best held by private citizens or families who are more interested in the communities they serve and the prestige they bring than in the um, annual quarterly profits. Bill's paper has a family that has two stocks of shares that gives them control. And if they suffer through three or four years, let alone quarters, of down profits, they'll continue to do that. Same with the McClatchy family, one presumes. Um, my family, I, I guess, was not quite as patient, and we've just recently sold our share in the Tribune. And, and uh, So I, I think if you can find journalists uh, find newspapers that have these sort of benevolent billionaires, as I called them in, in one article. Um, that's a good model. 
Um, private privatization of the media, in, in this case, is a good thing. On the editorial side, I think there's a, a few ideas that are starting to be tried, but I would argue not aggressively enough. First, in this area of sort of downsizing, is thinking about how do you prioritize your resources even more? How can you cover your city, your nation, your state with the same amount of resources? Um, when there's 50 ways to get the news, sort of national news or international, in sound bites or text or blogs, is that where you need to be spending your effort? Maybe the New York Times should have seven reporters there, but maybe the Chicago Tribune or the Louisville Courier shouldn't. So how do we think about unduplicated news, things that aren't available elsewhere, and how do we think about localism? A lot of newspapers, that's all they are local, but I think there's several, our family's newspaper, the LA Times included, trying to sort of straddle the national versus local issue. Second idea is sort of how do we think about cost, news gathering in a more cost-effective way. So television years ago had to realize they had to share resources much more, it, meaning to cover a news event rather than sending five network crews to cover the same thing, have the same feed side by side, they finally realized, hey, why don't we do a deal, CBS cover this one, NBC covers this one. Hasn't happened as much um, in newspapers, but I think it's something that has to be thought about. Second idea is sort of the blogs, the citizen journalists. And if you think of sort of news gathering as a pyramid, where the experienced paid journalists are on the top, at some point, is there a way that they can not just link to, but actually supervise blogs, citizen journalists in a much more structured way so that they can cover the stories that they used to have their own reporters covering, but done by citizens. Third idea just happened, uh, came to me last week. One of the um, small LA papers, the Pasadena Star, um, had, a, had an article that for their city council meetings, where they usually had to send a reporter, sit, take notes, watch this whole laborious process go on week after week, they now have an internet camera. It feeds it to Bangalore, India. They have someone watching this thing, writing up what happened. The editor writes it. We laugh, but of course, how many of us had a, have had a customer service call that hasn't gone to India in a while? Um, I'm not saying it's the right idea. I'm just saying it's how other businesses have used this. And here's a little example of a newspaper doing it. Third thing I think editorial has to do is fundamentally rethink the sort of print side. I think they have to have, and some have done this, but not all, they have to think of themselves as news gatherers in a 24-hour day. It's not that the business section closes at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's that when the story happens, they publish it. And they don't just publish it maybe with print. Um, I, I think the journalists of tomorrow have to be skilled in photos and videos and kind of bringing a complete package together because that's what the audience is going to expect. And I think they also have to think about not just the internet, but whatever the device, the phone, the 
handheld device, wherever that is, they have to be the news gathering source for that platform. Um, my last suggestion is, is probably the most controversial. And it comes from sort of being on the business side, but also being uh, in part of my career on, quote, the creative side. And usually when companies have increased competition, one of the things that they do in other industries is they create benchmarks and they tailor bonuses and people's performances against those. I think in the journalism business that's an anathema because one, editorial people don't like the business people and there's this kind of wall that for good reasons is there. But um, my suggestion is when you have a lot of competition, you need to sort of think about your core business in a different way. You have to think about readership, your impact, your enjoyment of the stories. You have to take your editors and say, how do we align you and your team with the success of that? And you have to create incentives for those editors based on those benchmarks. So they're not just involved with creating a product because they like it and they think that's what they've been trained to, but also because the audience uh, is reacting to it either better or worse than something they could have done. And television has done this for years, called ratings, and people live by them. They're not always good, but they, they motivate people to, to change. Um, and I'm not saying popularity is the key to journalism. I think it's impact, it's readership, it's, it's a, a much more sort of nuanced benchmark. But uh, when, you work, when you work in a newspaper, there, there's a sort of um, antithesis to this by the editorial team. They really don't want to kind of have the business side or that kind of business metrics interceding. And I think with this challenge that the internet is presenting, um, it's time to kind of relook at that. So um, definitely some challenges ahead, and, and uh, uh, I think with some new, new thinking, new ideas, um, they're there to be solved. Well, I get to ask one question, and I'll try not to be mean. Um, Gary, perhaps you saw the provocative op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal last week by Walter Hussman, publisher of the Arkansas Press Democrat, who offered the view that newspapers are in trouble because they give away their product for free online. What other industry sells a product in one place while also giving it away at no charge in, at another venue? Do you think that is a big part of the problem? And how can the industry disabuse the public of its expectation that online news should forever be free? I don't think we have to. Uh, I think that uh, online news for the, the business model of the internet is largely one of free material paid for by advertising, not unlike broadcast, television, and radio. And often newspapers are pointed to as an example of, no, that's paid. Yes, they're paid, but not very much. We barely cover our costs in the price of the paper for print and distribution. So it's virtually free anyway. 
in print as well. We're relying on advertising for 85 to 90% of our revenue. So it's not that different. So what most newspapers do, McClatchy, the New York Times, is online users pay, in a sense, by registering, by uh, providing certain information which uh, can then be used to target them with content, advertising, et cetera, and in that sense get higher rates. And um, <clears throat> it's very difficult for one newspaper company uh, or one newspaper website to fly in the face of an overall model for, the, uh, for a medium and uh, say that you're going to charge. Now, the Wall Street Journal has done it with specialized information and largely because businesses are paying for that as opposed to individuals. When the LA Times tried to do it with calendar and charge for their entertainment tab, they abandon it because they lose more uh, audience than they gain revenue by, um, they'll lose more advertising revenue by losing audience than they would gain by the, uh, getting the circulation revenue or price per, for the usage. So no, I don't think the answer for newspapers is to try to swim upstream in the internet and charge for content. I think it is rather to become more web savvy and not try to take our models in print and move them to the web. Okay. Marissa, as you um, articulated, Google News depends on a thriving newspaper industry for your content, even your legitimacy since you have no new staff of your own. Even with all the programs that Google has set up to work with the industry, do you think Google News helps the industry or is contributing to its decline? Uh, well, I think that it ultimately helps the industry. What I see in the usage of Google News is that people find new viewpoints, and that was really what Google News was about. Uh, it was developed by an engineer at Google named Krishna, who's a news junkie himself. He loves to read lots of different perspectives on the same story, um, and he found he would do this by hand. He would go and he would ultimately look at every single one of his favorite news sources and read the same story on each site. So he ultimately wrote a little program that did that because he wanted people to be able to see what the BBC said alongside the New York Times and what they said alongside the Sacramento Bee and actually stitch all that together and see all those different viewpoints because they all add a little bit to it. And so what we see with Google News is there's lots of people who discover new sources sources they didn't know about before, Xinhua in China, the BBC. You know, news users comment to me all the time how much information they're finding and how much they value those new viewpoints. We also see that Google News users read more news. They read more news than other people online because what happens is they get drawn into a particular story and they end up reading three or four different perspectives on that same story instead of, instead of just one. So I think that ultimately it increases the appetite for news. Um, and I think the other reason that I'm particularly hopeful around the sort of the, the future of newspapers is one by analogy of what I saw happen around search. So when you look at what happened with search at Google, Larry and Sergey developed a search technology and they actually didn't want to start a company. They went around and they tried to sell it uh, and ultimately weren't offered very much money for it and a lot of people didn't want to buy it and they said, you know, search isn't worth that much as long as our search is 80% as, as good as everybody else's were fine, and they were monetizing it through banner advertisements, which didn't work very well. And Larry and Sergey said, you know, no, that just doesn't sound right to us. This is something that people need. They use it every day, and it really matters to them what information they can find on the internet. And ultimately, 
text advertising started to work, the heavily targeted nature of it started to work, and it grew into a really flourishing business. And if you look at newspapers, they have all of that going for them, right? It's something that people need, they want new information every single day, and it really, really matters to them. And so while I think that the actual form may change in the future, I think that investigative journalism and the editorial function is here to stay, and there is value in that. We at Google try and focus on the users, and the reason to focus on the users is because where there's users and there's a lot of usage, there will be money. Maybe it's a subscription model, maybe it's an advertising model, but when you're part of people's everyday routine and you're doing something that really matters to them, you will find, find money in it. So I think that ultimately, uh, the platform we built with Google News, tying back to the question, will help fuel, fuel that appetite for information. And the monetization programs we have, along with our own experimentation in different monetization formats, will help uh, ultimately lead to a flourishing atmosphere for the newspapers online. And I would add one point to that. I mean, often newspapers, or many people in newspapers think Google and Yahoo are hurting newspapers. but. Google and Yahoo are driving a tremendous amount of traffic to the newspaper websites because our content, our unique content, our local content, is not on Google. It's just the tease, the headline of a few phrases, and when you click on it, you go to our website. So we're relying on Yahoo and Google for uh, a great deal of traffic. And I, well, I should also add that in addition to the distribution, because we do drive a lot of traffic, we, there's a lot of money in content. You know, through our, through our AdSense program, we act as an advertising partner to a lot of different websites. And in last quarter alone, we paid out over a billion dollars to content providers as part of the revenue share from that advertising. So there's a lot of value there, and there are ways of using these advertising networks, be it Google or Yahoo or, or MSNs, to ultimately derive a lot of value from your content. Bill. <coughs> In modern times, the Times has prided itself on its philosophy of spending and investing into recessions so that the paper can come out of an economic downturn more robust and competitive while other papers lay off staff and make other cuts, leaving themselves weaker. Do you think those days are over? Is this now a period where the, with the Times will be simply trying to hold on to what it has and avoid further, further cuts and sacrifices? Um, a quick glib answer would be to say that I'm the only editor I know who's actually hiring these days, but, um, but that's, that's too easy. Um, I do think that the Times will get through this transition the way it got through the one in the mid-70s and the one in the late 80s by investing, um, but it will not be, uh, strictly speaking, an infusion of new cash to expand the newsroom. What's, What's, uh, what's going on simultaneously with that is a, a transfer of resources from print to digital. The resources are not necessarily bodies in every case. Often it's the re main resource is time. Uh, reporters who used to spend 100% of their time working on a, a story for the next day's paper may now spend 20% or 30 or 60% of their time working on things for the web. Uh, and and that, will, that tr transfer will will gradually uh, increase. Okay. Harry, after the events of the last seven years, do you wish now that your family had never sold the LA Times? And what do you think Sam Zell will do to your family's paper? Will that be a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, well, there's, there's clearly two sides to the family position. I think those who are 
financially driven, have no connection to the paper, their father or their grandfather didn't run it, are probably happy to be out of uh, a mature business like this. Um, personally, I'm very disappointed. I, I think it's a great legacy. I'm sorry to see us sell. Uh, I'm sorry to see us sell the Tribune, and I'm sorry to see the someone like Sam Zell with no experience coming in to take over the Tribune group. Um, in terms of Sam Zell, I, I don't think we know. I had a lunch this week with one of the LA Times executives who was actually a little more optimistic than I guessed because he said uh, some of Sam's people have been there asking some very intelligent questions, talking about uh, growing top line revenues with some new ideas rather than just looking at the cuts and saying how we're going to how we're going to cut to make uh, make forecasts. So um, I, I would give him the benefit of doubt that he's smart and knows that it's a mature business and you don't just come in and try and hold 15, 20% margins by doing the same thing. All right, thank you. Now we're ready for questions from the audience. Um, if you'd come to the microphone and identify yourselves. Yes, uh, my name is uh, Svetlozar Kazanjev. So uh, I've been uh, an advertiser with Google for over six years, and uh, I'm, I'm a big admirer of all of the newspapers that are represented here. And it seems that everybody is uh, in violent agreement here that uh, we need to figure out how to uh, create a viable business model for the newspapers online. But uh, obviously, there have been challenges. So uh, in the offline world, it seems that there are two models that have been used to monetize. One is the subscription model. The other one is the advertising model. So with the subscription model, uh, the subscription model doesn't seem like it has worked too well. And part of the reason seems to be that online, just people tend to use a variety of different newspaper sources. You know, like they, uh, it encourages kind of like Google News type of advertise, uh, uh, of readership, where you read uh, some uh, article from uh, the New York Times, then you. Okay, so, <laughs> all right, sure. So my question is, uh, do you see a, a subscription uh, type of model? Uh, being successful in the way that iTunes worked uh, in uh, the music industry. And uh, uh, I guess, what do you see in the advertising coming next, given the fact that right now the monetization levels are not very solid? I'll take a first crack at that. I think the jury is still out on subscription models for uh, newspapers online. I, I mean, there's certainly a strong chorus of belief in the among the digerati that there is no such thing as a paid model that works. But and I, but I don't. I'm not sure that dogma has been proven yet. Um, I mean, there are little pockets where subscription model does work. It works, as Gary pointed out, for the for the Wall Street Journal, which is serving a specifically a business audience, and most of their subscriptions are paid for by businesses, not by individuals. We've had an experiment with Time Select, wildly controversial both within the newspaper and outside of it. Uh, and I don't know, you know, we're by the end of the year we'll probably decide what the future of that experiment is. But it certainly hasn't been a failure. Whether it's been a success or not is a 
a different question. That's you know, selling some of our premium um, content for a, a subscription fee. And there, you know, there are other things that have, have, are really just glimmers on the horizon, like uh, readers. Uh, you know, there's a Times reader that is still in its infancy where you can download the paper onto a tablet or uh, maybe someday electronic paper uh, and carry it with you. It offers a lot of advantages over a conventional newspaper site, um, including it's just a, a more pleasant reading experience. There may be a subscription model that goes with that. Uh, well, I think that um, from the Google perspective, you know, obviously we know a lot more about advertising. I do think subscriptions work particularly for archival content. There was very important pieces of journalism historically where people, researchers, students, and so on and so forth will pay $5 for that article to be able to see that image or read the original article on a really important topic. So I think there's value there. On the advertising side, we see a lot of interesting things. So. Uh, one phenomenon that's happened for us is we've been moving into more and more mediums. So you know, now in addition to online ads, we're looking at print ads, radio ads, video ads, um, and particularly on print advertisements. Well, what's happening is ultimately people come to Google to advertise online, and they say, well, you know, your advertising platform works so well for us. Why don't we give you more of our creative advertisements, video advertisements, print advertisements? You can help us place them. And we're actually running a test right now in conjunction with 50 newspapers where we're placing ads using our, our network uh, and collecting them from the what you know started off as an online advertiser and that's been working really well. Uh, for online advertisements, I think we're just at the dawn of what it means to target contextually because you can look at how do you target uh, a particular ad at a particular piece of content. But I think the whole element of being able to target also at the user and making that ad really personalized to them has a lot of possibility and opportunity. So when you think about things like demographic information, which we might fold into the targeting of our advertisements, I think that ultimately could really increase the efficacy of advertising a lot. And we've seen this before, right? Banner ads that ran blind monetized, you know, 150th as well as text ads that are targeted at search terms. And the same types of increases could happen once you roll in demographic targeting, more sophisticated contextual targeting, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm a freshman here. And Mr. Pruitt spoke about uh, how new, the fact that newspa the market for newspapers, especially locally, isn't as fractured, and how that's a strength for businesses as opposed for newspapers as opposed to m other kinds of media. And I was wondering what the panel thought about that. The fact that the local market for newspaper newspapers is uh, much smaller. You 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 usually have one newspaper per local market. And I was wondering what you thought about that as a strength and as a weakness for diversity of opinion and stuff like that. That was the one point in, in Gary's remarks when I wanted to um, wave a, a, a hand of dissent <laughs> in his direction. I mean, I do understand that from a business point of view, uh, uh, it's, it's easier for a paper to face long-term survival if it doesn't have competition. But I grew up in, you know, in two newspaper towns mostly, uh, and, and I think the advantage of competition not just for diversity of opinion, but for just the sheer energy that you get uh, in a competitive pursuit, aggressive pursuit of what's going on in your local government, for example, is is uh, a hard uh, a hard thing to lose. What I would like to add to that is I wasn't necessarily saying it was good or bad. I'm saying it is. It is a fact. Most uh, communities only have one newspaper. 
it is a business advantage. Most communities cannot support two newspapers. It can be an advantage to have that diversity of opinion. I agree that it does bring more diversity of opinion, but the truth is that in most communities there isn't. I mean, it is an advantage um, that I mean, McClatchy has a Baghdad bureau, has had a Baghdad bureau since the beginning, has had reporters there since the beginning, has a different perspective sometimes than the New York Times, has different coverage. That's important. The New York Times coverage is great, but it's also important to have the, a perspective from another, another view. I mean, the Knight Ritter Bureau did cover WMD differently than the New York Times in the lead up to the war. The, um, and so it's not, I mean, the New York Times is fantastic. It's the greatest newspaper in the world. But we need more than just one voice. So I don't want to be taken as someone endorsing the idea of one voice. I was just pointing out that it is. The, and, and I think it is important also, I think, um, Bill is right in the philosophy of taking the view that there is a downturn right now. It is wrong for newspapers to cut to the bone and not be able to recover from it. We do have editors making hires as well. We've got near record levels in our newsrooms and our news holes. We, our attitude is to take the long view. We are both fortunate that we have families that take that long view. Um, it is a stressful time in the industry. It's likely to get more stressful before it gets less stressful. But taking the long view, I think we can survive and we can have that diversity of voices. Um, let's hope that there's at least one newspaper in each market. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, my question is addressed to both Gary and or Bill. Um, I follow the Knight Ritter sale fairly closely, partly because I worked for the paper. <laughs> and I was really um, intrigued in reading the news reports about it because we were being told that Knight Ritter wasn't making enough money, not enough profit, even though Tony Ritter, as I recall, said he was at the 15% level, which to me is not too shabby. And I sort of felt that the newspaper was being viewed as a commodity akin to soap or, or, or something like that, that we were being traded as, as a box of soap would be traded. And nowhere in this debate did I hear any discussion or read any discussion about the value of newspapers to our society to America as being part of the First Amendment, as being part of what democracy is all about, and that without newspapers, you know, we can't really survive as a democracy. And I was wondering if you would just comment on, on, on my view on that. Thank you. You want to go first? Uh, w w would a simple amen do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you're, go ahead, Bill. No, I mean, you know, the <laughs> just to, to paraphrase what Gary said in response to another question, and it isn't necessarily something we like, but it is, it is what is. Uh, newspapers are publicly traded for the most part. Uh, there are a few that are privately held and in, in trusts that, uh, that honor the civic responsibility of the paper above the profit motive, but most of them are publicly traded. They became publicly traded to raise money so that they could grow and expand and do better journalism, uh, and now to some extent, we're hoist on that petard. Yeah. Quick history of newspapers. You know, when McClatchy was founded in 1857 and through for the first half of it, its, its, its existence, there was no radio, no television. Many newspapers in each market, cutthroat competition, many ideological, they came and went. And it was a very tough competitive time. Profit margins for newspapers were slight to zero. Radio came in 
1919, and that was the year when there were more daily newspapers in the United States than any time before or since. Not a coincidence. So radio comes first, then television. And, they, and everyone says, you know what, they're going to bankrupt newspapers. Well, they didn't, but they bankrupted about half of them. And uh, so it ended up that there was pretty much only one daily newspaper per market by the time you hit 1960. So for those lucky, hardy survivors, they got rich. Their profit margins grew because their classified competition and print competition was eliminated by radio and television. So ironically, it was radio and television that made newspapers rich, at least the survivors. And so then the companies that went public, and all newspaper companies that are public went public in the latter half of the 20th century, because during that time, those companies figured, we can satisfy our journalistic goals, those that had high-minded journalistic goals, not all of them did, and still be a public company and satisfy our public shareholders. And they were right. In that time period, they did. The New York Times did, the Washington Post did, McClatchy went public in 88, I feel we did. Many companies did, Knight Ritter did. After the emergence of the internet and its maturing and it taking share from existing media and creating for the first time in generations classified competition, there was new stress put on newspapers. And it became a more difficult goal, go to satisfy your journalistic goals and your shareholders. And those companies that didn't have two classes of stock, there were only a few of them, they're all either sold or under stress. So it becomes a difficult time now to satisfy both those goals. New York Times, McClatchy are unfortunate that we have companies that are, have two classes of stock and family control that take a longer term view. But long term, is that going to be viable? Perhaps it makes sense over time to look at a private ownership. You know, we talked about benevolent billionaires, but I'm not sure, you know, the billionaire, this is a mixed bag, man. You're going to get some that, that are benevolent, you're going to get some that really care what's said about them in that paper. And, you know, it's, not all billionaires are benevolent or not all billionaires are going to be the same. So, and if sports owners are our are, are comparison, well, you know, uh, enough said. Anyway, newspapers are critical to democracy. The stakes are incredibly high. That's, that's what we, you know, and people say, well, the Internet will take the place of newspapers. Well, guess what? If it's just blogs and stuff like that, we're in trouble. We need that fact-gathering. We need the accountability, verified journalism. And uh, without that, there isn't going to be the kind of controls on major institutions and, and, con and, and knowledge that we all need to conduct our lives. So, yeah, it is critical. The stakes are very high. We need to get it right. Thank you. Harry had to leave to make a plane. Sir. Uh, Les Hilger. Uh, my wife is a member of the Chandler family. Uh, Gary spoke uh, about speaking truth to power. And uh, Melissa spoke about the linkage of the internet to the newspaper industry. And yet Otis Chandler had to come out of retirement to deal with a separation between the business part of the newspaper and the editorial part of the newspaper. Um, as we speak uh, uh, to power, are you willing to speak to the People's Republic of China, to theocratic regimes, to totalitarian governments, and or are you going to be more interested in preserving market share for the internet. Yeah. I think that's for you. We <laughs> will. Um, so obviously for Ch China, for Google, has been uh, an interesting and um, controversy-ridden topic. Uh, and it's been, a hard it's been a hard debate inside the company and outside of the company. 
because uh, there's two philosophies. There's engagement and then there's estrangement, right? Do you enter the, business, do you enter the, the market uh, and ultimately try and affect change from within, or do you estrange yourself from it and say, you know, I don't want, we, we don't want our company to be, to be part of that? And when we looked at the billion users of the internet in China, we thought the good that Google could bring those people outweighed uh, some of the concerns we had about entering that debate. But ultimately, our engagement with China, entering into the Chinese market, was about affecting change and about bringing information to the people there. So we, we certainly are uh, interested in that, and that's why we've, we've chosen to enter that market. I, I just want to add, I'm not going to try and pass judgment on, on how Google does its business, because as Marissa pointed out, they're not in our business. But um, you know, when I think about whether or not Google or Yahoo would be a competitor in our space, one of the reasons that I think they would not is exactly the, the, what the questioner was getting at. I mean, the last two years, the Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting has gone to reporting in China, the kind of reporting that the Chinese government very much did not like. This year it was to the Wall Street Journal, last year it was to my newspaper. Um, and you know, I expect if I'm an executive at Google, all the immense business interests and opportunities represented by China, the last thing I want to be is you know, providing that kind of content or being subjected to that kind of pressure um, from the government in Beijing. Hi, my name is Isaac. I'm a developer on a year off from Columbia. Um, my question was actually directed at Harry, but maybe you guys could shed some insight. Um, Harry suggested that that newspapers should follow the lead of TV and play to their readership ratings. Um, but as you all know, uh, TV viewership has been challenged lately by online media sources such as YouTube. Um, so I heard Bill mention that, newspaper, that the newspaper's niche is the quality and standards that newspapers provide, um, that the best newspapers provide, um, that the bloggers can't possibly provide. I just wanted uh, to hear you guys comment where you think the niche ultimately will end up being. Um, I'll take a quick shot at that, and then I have to follow Harry out the door because I have a 1040 plane out of San Jose Airport. Um, hmm. um, well, you can see where ratings and emphasis on ratings got TV in terms of quality of the news. Uh, and, and, so uh, you know, I, I'm clearly not going to sit here and endorse that uh, you know that we sort of focus group or Nielsen rate um, journalism, and I expect Gary would say the same thing with equal gusto. That doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to our audience, and and the new w world we're in means we pay a lot more attention to our audience because they can reach us so much more quickly, you know, and in numbers. Um, there's a technique that I'm told is referred to as crowdsourcing, you know, where you take in interesting information that you've compiled, put it on your website, let people react to it, and that helps you in the process of making your journalism. We, you know, we have started to do a little bit of that, for example. We post comments, uh, you know, which we didn't used to do before except through the highly constrained medium of a letters to the editor page. So I, you know, I think there is a lot more interaction between newspapers and their readers. Um, uh, we do most email lists, so we even, you know, um, uh, you know, use our readers' um, clicks 
to put together essentially a list of things that we think other readers might want to see because they were extremely popular. Um, if that slippery slope leads to ratings, though, um, I don't think you'll find any of us um, going along. Uh, well, if I, I would think that, think that ultimately we'll see two niches arise. One is going to be around local newspapers. 70% of all... Um, um, well, you can see where ratings and emphasis on ratings got TV in terms of quality of the news. Uh, and, and, and so, I, you know, I, I'm clearly not going to sit here and endorse that, uh, you know, that we sort of focus group or Nielsen rate um, journalism, and I expect Gary would say the same thing with equal gusto. That doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to our audience, and, and the new w world we're in means we pay a lot more attention to our audience because they can reach us so much more quickly, you know, and in numbers. Um, there's a technique that I'm told is referred to as crowdsourcing, you know, where you take in interesting information that you've compiled, put it on your website, let people react to it, and that helps you in the process of making your journalism. We, you know, we have started to do a little bit of that, for example. We post comments. Uh, you know, which we didn't used to do before, except through the highly constrained medium of a letters to the editor page. So I, you know, I think there is a lot more interaction between newspapers and their readers. Um, uh, we do most email lists, so we even, you know, um, uh, you know, use our readers' um, clicks to put together essentially a list of things that we think other readers might want to see because they were extremely popular. Um, if that slippery slope leads to ratings, though, um, I don't think you'll find any of us um, going along. Uh, well, if I, I would think that, think that ultimately we'll see two niches arise. One is going to be around local newspapers. 70% of all uh, money is spent within five to ten miles of a person's home. So I think that ultimately local businesses will need to reach those, you, these, those consumers and they'll ultimately have a really healthy advertising business, be it through the paper medium or through the online medium. So I think that's one possible niche. I think a more interesting and less defined niche that will occur is around the democratization of information that the internet provides for the type of participation we've seen, right? When you look at YouTube, Wikipedia, people are participating online in unprecedented numbers, writing things for online, ultimately bringing videos online. And I think that what you'll see is you'll see brands building up online. It may come from a really inventive newspaper. I think, you know, for example, the New York Times has been a real uh, poster child for trying new and different things online, and I think that's really exciting. But I do think you will see, I mentioned before, MySpace reporters or Facebook reporters, and ultimately they might actually be editors, people who, like you see on Wikipedia, maintain a consistent viewpoint. When you talk to Jimmy Wales about how Wikipedia works, he says, you know, there's a common misconception that there's thousands of people all participating and contributing in harmony. But if you, you said if you actually look at the statistics, what happens is there's about 500 people on the site who function as editors. And there's, and there's pages that they really feel a strong sense of ownership over, that where they're fact-checking and removing inaccuracies and all of that. And I do think that what you'll see is you'll see some newspapers participating in 
having more citizen journalists, more people contributing video and writing for them, and then ultimately providing that editorial function, you'll also see the rise of new editors online taking all of that contributed content, packaging it, giving it an interesting viewpoint, fact-checking it, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the other niche. So I think the local newspaper niche is really strong. I think the broad viewpoint that can come from all that participation packaged behind a useful editorial perspective is probably the other niche. I agree with all of that. And uh, I think it was well said. For a newspaper company, when you, when you, TV is more, of it, more concerned with entertainment than newspapers. And so they, they rely much more on ratings and much more on surveys. A newspaper does to some degree, but to do that exclusively makes us a marketing company. To ignore it makes us arrogant. We have to be in the middle and straddle it. We have to remain relevant. Um, and, uh, and so it's finding that, that proper balance. And as Marissa was pointing out, we have more tools today to try to do that than ever before and more participation from a broad base of individuals. Well, with that, I think we will draw this to a close. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.